0: Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. I have an amazing, amazing friend and professor, and his wonderful son. And we're going to get into the intros in a minute. But I'm with Dr. Rick Cully. He's the strategic planning extraordinary, amazing professor that I had at USC in the uh, Sol Price School of Public Policy. He is the founder of the Institute for Executive Development in Las Vegas. He he is runs that organization with his son, Alex, who is is gonna be a guest today as well as interviewer. And he's gonna talk a little bit about about his podcast. Professor Cully has worked with individuals individuals and organizations in the private and public sector. Your company provides services such as strategic planning, executive coaching, and leadership development. He's an adjunct professor at USC in the School of Public Policy, where he teaches strategic planning, which I have to tell anybody, any listeners wanna take a strategic planning class, Take it with him. It's a lot of work, but you're going to be a better person after. He's a recipient of the Teaching Excellence Awards, which I have to tell you, he's an amazing professor. He has a master's and he has a doctorate in public administration and policy analysis. I love his story about how he got his doctorate. And he's an amazing father and he's got great kids. And that's going to bring me to you, Alex. Thank you, Alex, for being here.
1: Hey, happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So yeah, Alex, tell me a little bit about yourself really quickly, and, and I know you have a podcast you're putting together. Uh, you spoke with me about it. I think it's a great, great idea, and I'm, I'm excited to listen to it.
1: Uh, sure thing. Well, I guess, uh, you know, uh, starting with uh, kind of the two main things, uh, born here in Las Vegas, Nevada, and uh, I'm actually the youngest of three, and uh, why is that relevant? Uh, well, when you're the youngest, um, you learn early uh, how to learn from others. And so this idea of you know, learning from, from other people's mistakes, and boy, my brother's made a lot of them, uh, it really is the seed of this podcast. Uh, so what we're launching is going to be called uh, Learning the Hard Way, the Easy Way. And it's going to be you know, everything from subtle misfires to colossal screw-ups. Uh, we'll have interviews with guests who recount major mistakes they made and share something they learned the hard way. So uh, listeners be able to hear from successful leaders, experienced executives, entrepreneurs, and other interesting figures as uh, they share their mistakes and help you, uh, the listener, uh, figure out what you can learn from them.
0: And is it going to be on all the major platforms?
1: It sure is. Uh, yep. Every single one. And uh, you'll also be able to find it on our website, uh, IEDLV.com and our first uh episode is going to launch uh march 1st 2023 uh, and so you can find all that uh if you head to our website or just search uh learning the hard way the easy way on any major pod class uh, platform
0: hey alex where'd you go to school
1: uh, i got my undergrad here in uh, las vegas at unlv uh, i went on to get my master's uh there at usc southern california uh you know, I kind of had two loves growing up. I, I always thought I would get into marketing and advertising, but I figured anybody who wanted to do that would study it in school. And, and I wanted to be a little uh, ahead of the game. So I, I started with psychology. Uh, I got into political science, too, because, you know, what is politics? But the selling of people and ideas. And so at the cross section of these two things uh, is where my interest lied. Uh, at USC, I got a master's in uh Applied psychology, I really had dual tracks, consumer psychology, which is what I focused on, uh, and organizational psychology as well. Um, I went into market research after that. Uh, At about a year, I realized, you know, helping sell products wasn't quite as fulfilling. And so that's when I transitioned uh, back here to Las Vegas, started uh, working with Rick and, uh, you know, really helping sell ideas uh, and help people uh, get better at what they do.
0: Well, that's great. I'm excited for your podcast, so I'm—I uh, guess I'll be tuning in next week. So, thank you so much for being here. I—I I pulled you in here, and I said, "Please, you're going to help help me grill your dad today."
1: Happy to do it, and you know, I'm—I'm going to hold you accountable here for being uh, a guest on my podcast. So Absolutely. Uh, I'll be thinking of some mistakes you can share.
0: Absolutely, I make lots of them. So I can—we could—we can, probably do ten or fifteen million podcasts on me.
1: <laughs> Sounds so. good. Well, Rick, I want to
0: start with you. Um, what was What were you born and raised? What was your childhood
2: like? Well, um, like Alex, I was born and raised here in Las Vegas. Uh, My parents um, came to Las Vegas. My mother's side came to Las Vegas in the early 1920s. They were among uh, the recognized first families of Las Vegas and uh, the first um, in the community of Hispanic. So my mother's family are Mexicans. And um, my dad came to Las Vegas in the early 1930s to work on Hoover Dam. Um, He was hired eventually by the Bureau of Reclamation as a full-time employee and was a rigger out at the dam in the early years. But as he spent more time in and Las Vegas became a real community. He was a civic leader and an activist in the community and particularly for um, the, the rights of workers and helped shape and develop a couple of the early uni- unions in our city, as well as to focus on um, the importance of education and particular, and in particular, vote schools. So um, the city itself in the 1950s and 60s when I was growing up was a community of about 50 to 75,000. Everybody knew everyone. It was a um, big small town because of the gambling and international reputation of the city. Um, My mother was a homemaker until I was in elementary school and then she started to work for the postal service and um, made a career of that as a finance examiner. And um, my dad died when I was in high school from um, a post-op infection or a minor surgery. Um, But after he passed away, because he was on the school board, there's a school named after my dad that Alex and I do community service with. Several times a year, we provide uh, coaching and guidance with that that school. So that's that's sort of my, uh, went to Catholic schools, both elementary and high school, and then spent a year working out at the Nevada test site um, before going away to college.
0: Well, yeah. So, wow. What did you do at the Nevada test site, am I asking? Maybe you can explain what a Nevada test site is because many people probably don't know, remember what that is.
2: The test site is where um, America tested its nuclear weapons. In the 1950s, those were up, above ground tests. In the 1960s, they went underground. And I actually worked in Area 52 as a housing clerk in a highly restricted area. Um, and I worked um, about 10 months out there before I, I moved moved down to Southern California to go to school. And uh,
1: there's a great story. They had badges, right, that kind of clued you into to radioactivity. And that went off for you once, right?
2: Well, you wore this badge to pick up any um, any possibility of nuclear fallout which because so many of the workers went into areas in the mountains was the the reference Um, but when I was sleeping one night the guys that I worked for we all were in residence out there in four person trailers they Snuck in, changed my badge, and <clears throat> when I came into the office, which was just um, a quonset hut basically, um, they all freaked out, saying your 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 badge has changed colors. You must have been exposed to radiation. Scared the crap out of me, and um, then they all started laughing. And I guess that's what they did to um, to the new new workers that that came there.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely hilarious. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: So how did, you, how did you end up in LA and what was it like in your high school years? I mean, you, you ended up in LA, what was that transition like? Did you know what you wanted to do after you finished high school?
2: Um, my mother had um, a brother and a sister that lived in LA, one down in Southgate, the other, and my aunt lived in Pasadena. Her son was my age, so every summer we took a vacation. We'd go to Pasadena for um, a week, and I would often stay an extra couple of weeks there. And my cousin would come up to Las Vegas. So I was, you know, I was used to all, all my life. My grandma Chavez lived in East LA off Caesar Chavez Boulevard. So I was very familiar with, with LA. Um so it was a logical choice, but I started out at um, a community college, Orange Coast College in Costa Mesa. So my first five years were I lived in Newport Beach and uh, graduated from Cal State Long Beach with a degree in poli sci and business.
0: Did you work when you were going to get your undergraduate. I know you were always working a lot and in school I know it's, it hasn't been a real easy road for you. You've always worked extremely hard.
2: Well, yes, I'm, I'm, um, I always had to, I always had to work to, um, get, you know, my rent and things like that. I, I got some money from, um, my dad's annuity and I get a few dollars a month. My mom would send me a check, but I always was working in, um, I worked for the city of Costa Mesa in their um, parks department during the summers. I worked back in Las Vegas, but during school, I often worked um, for a couple of years in a convenience store, like a seven 11 type, um, you know, four to six hours a day, and that—that that was my actual first exposure to establishing customer relations. But you were—you know—you were always more into cars than school back then, right? And yes, my my passion—I um, was never particularly interested in school because it, it didn't have enough application. So to supplement and generate a focus of my passion was always cars first, um, you know, in high school, the classic drag racing 57 Chevy. And then, um, I carried that into Southern California cause there were so many hot rods and that was a real passion. And then, um, I got a, I, when I started, my brother and I worked in the business together, my older brother, he worked at orange county international raceway in orange county and um, the racetrack asked him to start a um, publication for their racetrack which served as a like the anchor tenant of his uh little business and he asked me to do sales so we went into business together all the time i was going to school but i i quickly started to make um a healthy income doing that and um that working and going to school finally clicked because i was studying business and poli sci um but i had the last couple years all my classes were at night um, monday through thursday and i worked all day
0: and then what? made you go decide to get a master's degree
2: what pushed you to do that well um the the part of school that had the biggest appeal to me was the public administration side focused on um cities and urban areas so i thought city management would be great and i went into the specialty track of public administration and i i had this aspiration to become a city manager and i um i was a finalist to be um an assistant uh, and an intern in the city of newport beach which is right where i lived and it was a model community and i it was about started out with about 10 or 12 candidates and I was one of the finalists, but they selected somebody that was a grad student uh, and I went to other cities to, to interview. And there was one thing that was interesting. um, And I noticed that in every city manager's office that I went to, there was a diploma, a master's degree in public administration from USC and that that sort of planted a seed um, in my mind of if I went to grad school that would be a great place to go um, so I'll just stop with that
0: well, what was your experience like at USC in the master's program
2: in a word it was fantastic um, they had core faculty, as well as leading practitioners. And SC's public administration program had a a very strong professional focus more than an academic focus. So you had a a core group of academicians, but you had um, very high level, very successful professionals and like they had leading city managers from Pasadena, Long Beach, and communities that were either growing tremendously or transforming quickly. And um, But one of the things that I learned because of the candor of the classroom was that the city manager didn't, didn't have as much autonomy, as i had thought i saw the city manager as an architect for for change and leadership but what i learned was they they were they were more directed what to do than being able to initiate what to do
0: well i i really uh, i've experienced that same thing i when i was taking your class i used to just i could listen to you for hours and we're going to get into your cullyisms because it, 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 you make some of these such insightful statements regarding not only strategic planning but just leadership generally that I think almost everybody can not only apply in their professional life but a lot a lot of times in their personal life. What made you go on to get a doctorate? And I love the story you told me about um, regarding your your experiences in the doctoral program and how some people at some point wanted you to give up and, and you didn't give up. And I love that story that you told me about. You were just dogged about pursuing your doctorate.
2: Well, first I, I worked in a law offices growing up because my aunt was a legal secretary, so maybe from fifth or sixth grade through high school, I was a, a runner after school for various law offices. So I thought I'd go to law school. When I was in the master's program, I would go over to the Gould School of Law and sit in on some of those classes, the large introductory classes. And I I, I started to realize that um, just listening to presentations and then playing back what you heard was, was not going to be as intellectually challenging or stimulating for me simultaneously two of my best friends in school were in were in the doctoral program and to be candid i thought well if these guys can be in this program i certainly can and um I was able to uh, get admitted into the, to the program. You had to go through an initial screening course and, um, I didn't do so well in that course. I had some life challenges going on and, um, they discouraged me from continuing. Um, and I think they confronted me with, you know, is this really what you want to do with your life? And, um, it's probably where, where I started to form what became known as a Kully-ism, And that is that, um, the right things often happen for all the wrong reasons. And basically they were telling me, you know, you should, you should get out of this program and find something out. But my advisor, Professor McEachran, Alec McEachran, um, you know, had a candid discussion with me and said, you know, you have to decide. This is a turning point in your life, and so I was able to appeal my um, my um, letter um, from the two faculty members. They put me on a probation. I had to take the course again. Um, But this time I I did quite well and um, continued in the PhD program. And then at the end of the the program, after the general examinations, I was um, one of the three uh, PhD students that got a faculty appointment for a year um, to teach there. Now, I thought you got that appointment for being smart, um, but I learned quickly because you were teaching two two courses a a week, both were 8 a.m., and I realized you weren't weren't being selected for your brilliance. You were being selected to teach the early morning classes that none of the senior faculty wanted to teach, So, um, but it was a great learning experience.
0: Yeah, what was it? What was that learning experience for you like you're you were in your studies and you were also teaching these classes? What did you learn from the students or the faculty at that time?
2: What I learned most um, was that I could apply what I was learning um, in what I was teaching. And I had the realization early on that you learn the most when you teach. You learn the most when you teach others, because you're able to often fill in the gap for yourself by having to explain to others. And that's, that was a, the biggest thing.
0: When you finished your doctorate program, did you know what you wanted to do?
2: I, I had a good, um, I had worked my way up to being um, the special assistant to the dean of the school in my last year there, um, and I realized that I knew it intuitively, but I realized that I'm much better at doing things than, um, than writing about them or doing research in a traditional way. And I also realized that, um, that having a big scale and big challenges is important. And I fortunately, um, while I was uh, in that position, I I met with the head of uh, human resources from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And he was out at SC recruiting for master's candidates for their management development program. But he had just um, lost his administrative assistant and was looking for a new assistant for himself. And he brought me out to New York for a few days. I spent time, they were, the Port Authority built the World Trade Center, a big public agency that operated, still does the airports, tunnels and bridges between New York and New Jersey, and was about um, 12 to 15,000 in employees. So, I got hired there, and I always had um, an aspiration to work and live in New York City. So I, I hadn't finished my dissertation, but um, I got this phenomenal job, and um, I just fell in love with working there. And if I remember right, um, too, you only took the job because you, you got turned
1: down for another one at USC.
2: Yes, well, that, that was, um, I had applied to be um, an assistant dean at SC and um, unfortunately for me, they hired somebody who had completed their dissertation, had worked in the governor's office, had worked in the mayor's office, uh, was um, a Latino, spoke beautiful Spanish, was married, had two kids, was a great guy. He had more experience, performed better, um, and overall was more effective than I was. But other than that, I should have gotten the job. <laughs> um, and I was, I was very upset that um, that rejection at any level is a great learning experience. But um, it really irritated me and and it also motivated me and so i was determined to to um to prove i was a you know a a great talent um so i'll just stop there with that
0: well i want to i want to just ask you because like i said you have a wealth of knowledge when it comes to you said you know Failure or, or something, and it really wasn't a failure, but just re- that rejection in some ways. You said it's a, it's a it's a great learning tool. Why is it a great learning tool?
2: Well, I think when you when you're rejected for a position or an opportunity, you're forced to reflect. Why didn't I get the job? Or what didn't I do? why didn't I qualify? Why didn't they hire me? And in those moments, um, you, you tend to have moments of clarity and you have to decide in the moment, am I going to accept this resignation or, you know, or do something about it? I mean, Accept the, re- the rejection or do something about it. And that I got turned down several times in my life for opportunities I thought I should have had. But the rejection provided more clarity. And um, clarity is power. I,
0: I love when you say these kind of things, but I feel like it's like a hanging chad. When you say that, I just want to hear more. <laughs> so I feel like it's a, you're baiting me here. I, I, what do you? I'm gonna to have to build on that a little bit. I can't. I can't let you get away with that. So clarity is power. Can you expand on that?
2: Yes. That um, when when you have clarity, you have the ability to focus on what's most important, and. Throughout your life, you, you you need you need clarity. In our work, you know we are often talking about the difference between being strategic and being tactical. Tactical is 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 basically working in the business. Strategic is basically working on the business. For yourself, you know, tactical is working is simply working and doing what you do but strategic is pausing in the moment and saying am i am i doing what i want to be doing and um perspective and clarity are very similar so when you're tactical you're you're way down in the business when you're strategic You know you're working on the business and you want to make sure that you're focused on what's most important
0: well you know what i think this is a great segue um i i know you went on to wall street i want to ask you a little bit about that how did you get into wall street and then you kind of went from wall street and started to do the strategic planning part of your life which i really want to focus on because you are a wealth of knowledge and i know our listeners want to learn about strategic planning. Many of them don't even know what strategic planning is. Um, Can you talk about a little bit, touch on your wall street experience and then how that kind of you built on that and came back to Vegas and started doing strategic planning.
2: I was at the port authority about nine years, nine, nine plus years. And um, while I was at the port authority, I taught at NYU that's where I um, was awarded the Teaching Excellence um, Award. But I always thought, felt that it was, it was helpful to, to, to teach what you do to others to enhance your understanding. But I always, I have, worked my way into succession planning and then executive development and was responsible for the oversight of our um, 400 executives at the Port Authority and created the first executive development programs. And they were targeted for our, um, our emerging leaders, mostly at the assistant director level, senior manager level. So I had done that there for probably two to three years and then the New York Stock Exchange was looking for someone to fill a new position that had been established, and I got hired and um, went to the exchange, and eventually worked into the position of director of executive and management development.
1: And I, I I just heard Rick yesterday talk a little bit about you know the interviews. You know we're Vegas guys, so we you know we set the odds so. I think yesterday you said, you know, if, if there had been odds on who would get that job, Rick would have been a thousand to one, you know, cause everybody else was Ivy league educated. Uh, you know, he was West coast, didn't have the network connections, but I remember you said there was one question in the interview that when it was asked in your answer, you knew that was, that was the reason you got the job. What was, what was the question? The,
2: the question was, um, that we have a we have an executive development program planned to start in about three months. They had a specific date, and do you think you can help create a program that will um, be successful. And the participants in the program were the president of the New York Stock Exchange four executive vice presidents and 16 senior vice president. And I answered. my answer was absolutely. That was my one word answer. Um, And after I got hired after about three or four weeks there, I asked a senior VP of human resources who was doing that interviewing why he hired me And um, basically he said, you know, you're you're the only person that answered that question without qualification. Like, will I have the resources? You know, will I have a staff to help me and various other things, you know? You have to know when you have to know. And that was a moment I had to know.
0: So. I love that. So I, I have to ask you these these questions because you're here and you're just such a fountain of knowledge, <laughs> Professor Kelly. So um, in your mind, what's, when you were at the New York Stock Exchange, it's, it's, I know that you studied a lot of this prior to going and you were teaching at NYU. In your mind, what makes an effective leader?
2: Well, I think what makes, makes an effective leader is that they can develop strong followers. You know, a, a leader, as we defined it, and this has really evolved from sort of early Peter Drucker days, is you know a leader is a person with followers. You know, while things like vision and values and inspire, etc., are you know important concepts and certainly important to have, the only things that leaders have in common. followers so you know you have to recognize even if you don't like or respect someone if they have followers you know those people are leaders
0: are are leaders born or created
2: well I I I know that's 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 a classic leadership question and Some leaders are are born, um, but without hesitation, I can say uh, great leaders are often the result of very careful development. And I have had the opportunity because of all the years I've worked around so many leaders to recognize how many really amazing leaders are simply good students of learning. So we we know from experience today in this environment, the best leaders are the best learners. And why is that so important? Because the remainder of this decade is going to be focused on the evolution and changing workplace of the 2020s. And because of COVID, the transformation of the workplace is significantly greater. And so probably in the next three years, we'll see a huge transformation in the number of companies requiring people to come to work five days a week. Many companies to to really um, set a new standard are going to cut back to four days.
1: Uh, Do you have any, uh, you know, favorite leaders, best leaders you worked with in the New
2: York days? You had to pick one. Well, I, I, I couldn't pick one, but I could pick several. One would be um, Peter Goldmark at the Port Authority. I, I was, his uh admin assistant for a year peter was a brilliant is a brilliant leader um, at the new york stock exchange um, john J. john phelan the chairman dick grasso uh, the president dave domichon those were three people i really respected and what did what was it about them what did they do i think they um they through um a variety of reasons quickly not only um got followers um but they developed people into leaders as well so you know once and if a good leader um, will will develop and have followers. Great leaders have followers who become leaders themselves. At least that's my experience.
0: Rick, you know, I told you, I have a bunch of colorisms. <laughs> I, I could spend all day. I could do 10 million podcasts with you. Let, when you start to do, can you define strategic planning for me? And I know you've, when you moved, to Vegas, you, were, you started your strategic plan, planning company. And by the way, to give people some context, you have a very successful company. You and your son have a very successful strategic planning company. Can you define what strategic planning is and why it's important?
2: Yes. Well, our company focuses on strategic planning, leadership development, and executive coaching, which was a, were the things that I had done all those years in New York um strategic planning is about developing a um a blueprint for your organization but in more you know um operational language it's developing a road map from where you are to where you want to be okay and strategic planning is covered in lots of mystique and complexity and all that. But um, it's, it's basically about developing a a framework and a process to go from where you are to where you want to be. And just like um, I had, we had someone we were coaching here in our office yesterday and she, um, an attorney, with a lot of experience and they use the phrase, well, I don't like to do this kind of research or that kind of research. But if you ask me about planning on things for my personal life, that gets me motivated. You have to get people motivated about being involved in the planning process in the workplace and not to think of that planning as an abstraction or something that that's only going to affect the top level. So the most effective strategic planning is not from the top down, it's from the bottom up. And it's all about creating that roadmap, you know, and having everybody understand here's where we are, here's where we want to go clarifying what's going to get us there and perhaps most important what's going to get in the way and strategic planning by nature is disruptive okay it it creates and forces change and one of the things we've learned is that um Comfort or being comfortable is the biggest obstacle to change and transformation because people like to be comfortable at work. So uh, what do you see is, um,
1: you know, define real quick the the difference between, you know, a strategic plan and strategic planning, because you've talked more about strategic planning as opposed to, you know,
2: a strategic
1: plan. What's the difference?
2: So strategic planning is the process of creating the plan. The plan is the outcome or result, but the planning has to have everybody's prints on it. So when it's created, what's presented is a reflection of the process. And the process is often, more important than the product because it gets people to look at what they're doing why they're doing it and um, we know from experience that especially in today's workplace 25 or 30 percent of people's time um people often in in the workplace work really hard doing an excellent job of doing the wrong things How many people have you worked with in your field who work really hard doing things that don't need to be done, that are obsolete, that are not necessary?
0: So, Professor Culley, how do you overcome resistance to a strategic plan, and why do strategic plans fail?
2: Well, I guess... um, Resistance is um, a natural reaction. So what we work hard to do in the beginning is to explain something. And and part of the explanation is, we'll emphasize, you need to get more comfortable being uncomfortable. That's sort of a a core Cullyism, I guess. You need to be more comfortable being uncomfortable. Why? Because when you're comfortable, you're doing what you've done before, okay? It's familiar. You know how to do it. But that means that you're perpetuating your own status quo. When you get uncomfortable, um, as adults, we don't want to be uncomfortable. You know, we were uncomfortable when we were young, when we were teenagers, adolescents, early 20s. But as adults, we we shouldn't have to be uncomfortable. But the truth is, the biggest learning comes through struggle. And and it's it's not a physical struggle, but it's similar. It's a mental struggle. You have to change your construct. Your concepts have to be challenged, and, and you have to accept the fact that much of what we learn especially today, is increasingly obsolete. Alex and I will often ask a group of leaders in a room in a particular company, what percentage of what you've learned is obsolete? And this is one of our core questions. What percentage of what you've learned? And so we're talking to senior managers and executives, 15 or 20 years of experience. And they'll say, they'll raise their hand, they'll say, you mean, since we started working? Yeah, Yeah, since you started working. Things you've learned in the workplace. And um, we start to hear answers like, you know, 10% or 15%. And then somebody sitting in the room says, hey, you know, that's completely BS. At least... 25 to 50% of what we've learned is completely out of date. Um, if you go, when we worked in Silicon Valley for a number of years, that number was often 50 or 60%, just as a standard.
0: And I remember... Gr- oh, go ahead, Alex. Sorry, go ahead.
2: Well, I was
1: just going to, you know, what makes strategic plans fail? I think uh, one thing is if you make failure Fail, you know. If people see things as if they're not perfect, it's failed. You know uh, that um, that is a huge reason where uh, people get demoralized. So if there's not short-term wins, if if you can't you know publicize or celebrate what you've done, I think the other thing is that um, if if you're not committed or if the organization's not committed, you know, strategic planning isn't a one-off. Uh, it has to be baked into the DNA of the organization. Uh, You you can't just create the plan and then email it out and expect it'll work. You have to integrate it into the language of leaders. You have to report on progress regularly and, you know, not performatively just saying here. Here's how great we are. But, you know, here's what we've done well. Here's where we didn't do so good. um, And here's what we're going to try and do, you know, in the next quarter or year. But uh, I'm drawn from from John Maxwell here. You know, commitment is the enemy of resistance and strategic planning, when it fails, it's a result of you know, people not being truly committed to making it happen and making it sustainable.
0: Can I ask you, I guess both of you, a question here. Um, why is, is, are organizations that have strategic plans, are they, and, and actually, and I think your dad taught us this, even in, individual strategic plans, are people more successful with a strategic plan as opposed to nothing
2: I I think that um I think one of the most important things in in our strategic planning process we we focus on vision and values which are timeless but vision is long term the ultimate of what you're striving to achieve on an operational level then you have mission and goals and mission is you know why why are you doing what you're doing and it's focused on you know the the here and now and then you focus on goals and and one of the things that i know from experience is that um if if you don't have clear goals at work or in your life, you focus on the problems. Let me say that again, because it's, it's, it's really a, such an impactful thing to understand. If you don't have clear goals at work or in your life, you focus on problems. Now, why is that so profound? It's that people like to do what they're good at doing. Right. So if in the workplace, people pride themselves on being good problem solvers, especially those who are managers and, or people who think of themselves as leaders, think of themselves as really good planners and problem solvers. However, what does that mean that those people have to have every day? They have to have problems to, to be what they're good at, right? And um, But if you're focused on problems, and all the problems people focus on in themselves are not the problem. They're the symptom of a lack of clear goals. You know, we, we, we look under rocks doing our organizational assessments all the time we we look at the blind spots we go down um all, a lot of it, closed off alleys but problems are a symptom most of the time of the lack of clear goals
1: yeah people need something to latch on and if it's not leadership or the organization saying you know here's the hill we need to climb They'll make uh, mountains out of out of the molehills and and figure out something else. You know, uh, I think over time you always need a, a tether point. You know, imagine if you were trying to you know go on a weight loss journey without a scale. You know, how do you know if you're doing better? Well, I I, I look or how I feel, but oftentimes that's you know that's that's determined by more factors than reality, or or than objective measurement. So I, I think just to build on what Rick said, it's, it's not just having goals, it's having data to measure how are you doing on those goals? Because, you know, how people feel is often determined by what's going on in their life and, and has little to nothing to do with the actual progress on, um, on your goals or on, on, you know, what the organization is trying to accomplish.
0: When I, when I think of like innovation, and like you said, sometimes there's not a lot of forward thinking in some of the traditional managers. I love the story, Rick, and I hope you could talk about, um, I know your son Alex likes this, but uh, as well, I used to love going to the day clubs in, in Vegas. And, and I remember you telling us a story, if you could tell us a story about how day, day clubs came about. And I, I thought that was a great example you brought up in class about the innovation of that idea. Can you talk about a little bit about how that story developed?
1: And bef- before you do, for the record, I'm not into day clubs, uh, just in case you know. <laughs> the figure giving me a, you know, bad rep here. I'm-
0: he's never been to a day club. No, he's he's never been to a day club.
2: <laughs> well, that's because Alex is married. Two years, a little less than two years now. So, um, I'll just leave that alone. Uh, well, like so much change comes not because people are saying that's a great idea. Go ahead and do it. But, um, so much change evolves from people challenging the traditional way things were done. And I simply said that, um, in one particular hotel here in Las Vegas, the people running swimming pool at one of the hotels wanted to Change from simply traditional music by the pool to creating more of an experience. And um, so they wanted to get the approval and support of their bosses to create more experiences around the pool instead of just traditional music, bring in a DJ and a very well-known DJ, create more cabanas, create all sorts of other things. And of course, their supervisors said, no, that'll cost money. Let's just keep, you know, we're doing fine. Anyway, they went ahead and did it anyway and started to get more people coming to this particular pool. Then they started to promote it as, you know, have a nighttime experience during the day and, um all of a sudden the the day-long experience at a pool became a very lucrative resource for many, if not most of our resorts here in Las Vegas. And um, I think nine of the 10 most successful day clubs in America are here in Las Vegas. And you can go to any major resort now and have an amazing experience during the day at um, all of the leading resorts. But it began with an idea for change, which leadership rejected, which brings me to another point. Um, The shelf life of leadership knowledge is much shorter than the shelf life for traditional knowledge about organizations. So leadership knowledge expires quicker, what's relevant. So that is gonna be another significant area during the the rest of the decade as the workplace changes and leaders are gonna have to give up understanding that control is the key factor. When control is an obsolete concept, what's more important for leaders than control is their ability to influence.
1: Yeah, and, and I'll just say um, often influence not by telling people, but by being able to ask good questions and creating an environment where people feel comfortable to, to share things that, you know, they, they may be risky ideas. They may not work, but uh, if if all you're doing is waiting till you know sure thing ideas come along to make changes, you're going to be waiting a while.
2: And and so leaders can often get the same outcomes that they used to get by controlling and telling people, but now they have to be better at asking those questions and listening, and then turning those suggestions into actionable solutions. One of the core elements of our business is focused on creating actionable knowledge.
0: I love that. And I have to go over some of these Kali-isms, and, and maybe, Alex, you can explain a kali <laughs> and before I I start reading some all.
1: Sure. Well, I guess you know my entry point to cullyisms was, you know, oh that's just stuff dad says, and you know, growing up, everybody's folks, parents, you know, mentors from childhood, you know, they always give advice. You know, I came to learn that the advice I was getting was, you know, worth a lot of money when Rick gave it to clients. I think learning from others, you know, I saw my 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 brothers, you know, say, oh, okay, you know, it's just dad. But I recognized early I was getting you know executive coaching from like seven or eight years old, and so you know cullyisms are uh, big ideas in short sentences. Uh, you know they're a way to um, give yourself something to remember, uh, top of mind in the moment that allow you to you know get clarity, uh, get perspective on a situation, and so you know a lot of them are are drawn from Rick's experiences you know, are, are inspired by ideas throughout history, throughout leadership. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, you know, cully are uh, the brilliance that comes out of Rick's mouth. And uh, I think I'll have just my favorite, um, you know, the one that I, I heard earliest and most often is, it's not the problem that's the problem. It's how you respond and react. And you've heard, I think, throughout the course of him talking about that. You know, that's that's what failure teaches you. It's that it's not the problem that's the problem. It's how you respond to it.
0: I I love, Rick, can you talk to me about, I love the mirror analogy that you gave us in class about sometimes we look in a mirror and we only see part of our, so you're looking at a mirror, we see a small part of ourselves.
2: Yes, in fact, Alex and I just talked through a client, about that the other day. But, you know, we'll often ask people, how many of you looked at a mirror this morning when you got up to come to work? And of course, everybody's hands go up and, um, and then we'll say to somebody else in that same group, um, the follow up question is, how many of you looked at a full length mirror? And four or five people will raise their hand out of 15 or 20. And then we'll make the joke, well, we know who the vain people are in in the group, but then we'll ask the money money question, which is how much of you do you see in a full length mirror? And the first response is typically people say, you see a hundred percent of yourself, you see all of you, but then somebody else will say, no, you don't, you only see half of you because you can't see what's behind you and That's that's what's important because on your very best day at work, at best, you're aware of about 50 percent of what you're doing. And that's why I have another Cullyism, which is um, you know, to really be effective, you know, strong people make strong people stronger and that's why and it's one of the things that i observed early on about you fig in class is you you were gravitating to other really strong people and you know strong people are often not the ones that say what you want to hear Strong people are often the ones challenging you about your idea and about why you're doing what you're doing. So strong people make strong people stronger. When you go to the gym and you see the strongest people working out, hardest, they're working out with other people who really push themselves. You're driving down the street, you'll see two runners really putting out They're high performers. So strong people make strong people stronger. However, strong people often make weaker people feel insecure or sometimes ineffective. So anybody who's been stronger than their boss and felt that sort of unseen vibe about what did i say or what did i i do Uh, when you work for a boss who's not as strong as you um they're often intimidated and in one class i saw i said that there were a lot of people with you know like question marks above their head like trying to understand it and it forced me to come up with. simpler analogy. A's want and hire other A's. B's want and hire C's. So you would think the B's would want to hire A people to help them get better. But that's just not the case.
0: Well, let me ask you a few other ones. And Alex, if you can think of other some other good ones, because I, I love the mirror analogy, and I've actually used that in some of the other contexts in my life as well. Um, it's I, I love this one. You don't get paid to be right. You get paid to be effective.
2: Yes. <clears throat> well, uh, the, the genesis for that is a number of years ago, I had a client up in the Bay Area, and this is among the smartest people I've ever worked with. And... Would, he was on the leadership team of course and the group would have a conversation and he would say well that's not going to work or that's a dumb idea but they could they get a consensus and they go ahead and do something and then three four six months later it didn't work out and he would say i told you so and then after the meeting say to me um i told him you know i was right and I would say <clears throat> my response, finally one day I said um, you were right, but you weren't effective because being right is simply saying, I told you so, or I know better. But if you want to be effective, you have to be able to explain to people. If your idea is so good, you have to be explain able to explain. Why it's good and why it's better than that other idea yeah, and, yeah. You know, in,
1: in school you, you get points for being right but at work you you get paid for results and so nobody really cares who's right and uh, you know I, I'm going to ask you about another one Rick um, continuing on with the theme of, of right things you know you have one here the right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing where'd that come from
2: well, that just that just came from some impressive displays of stupidity that I saw exhibited in various workplaces. And um, people you know would say this is going gonna work, but a, a, a good idea at the ba- at a bad time is not a good idea. And <clears throat> ideas, Ideas are successful when they're aligned with the time for their need. And so, you know, we we always hear about the concept of first mover's advantage when somebody comes up with the right idea. But, But the right idea, in order to be effective, has to hit at the right time.
0: And how about this one? Don't let like the worst behaviors in others bring out the worst behaviors in you. And I think it's very difficult sometimes as a leader to be able to handle that. Can you talk about that a little bit and how and how a leader can be effective in overcoming those kind of I guess a propensity to be to respond in a negative way if you're in, interacting or dealing with some behavior like that?
2: Okay. So this is, this is one that Alex and I deal with all the time. Um, You know, the workplace has many different kinds of, of people. And some people are always good at doing the right and best thing. And other people are more contrarians and are always against things, especially new ideas, new concepts. And some people will just do things. And one of our core principles guiding leaders is always be hard on the problem, not on the person. And we also know that any leader who attacks the person or the people lacks the skill to explain the problem separate from the personality or style. So um, not responding to the personal comments, or, you know, the worst behaviors in other people often requires what we describe as bridge phrases. So where you might feel like responding with, well, you're stupid, too, or just because you Say it's a dumb idea doesn't mean you're not dumb or any other of the childish comments. So we, through our coaching process, focus on when you have those really strong emotional responses, you're entitled to have them, but what should come out is something like what we describe as a bridge phrase, which is, well, that's an interesting idea, tell me more, or that's a that's a different way of explaining something. Can you talk more about that? And I, I think it takes
1: too, you know empathy because if, if you know all you're doing is responding without thinking of where this is coming from, then you know' you, you're, you're underarmed or underprepared. Um, you know Rick will often say that uh, sarcasm or cynicism, is the biggest indicator, uh, of an under uh, or underdeveloped mind. And in that context, when someone says sarcastic things all the time, you could be annoyed or angry, but the, the appropriate response is, you know, boy, this is a, a smart person who just doesn't have the stimulation or, or, you know, the skill set, and, and that can make you want to help them even more. Um, so, you know, when people act in a way that is unexpected, that you think they should be doing something different, uh, it's also important to realize you know, maybe they have something else in life going on, something at home, you know, something they're dealing with, and their only way to channel that pain or frustration or anxiety or hurt is by attacking others or you know, uh, throwing turds in the punch bowl, and and rather than take a big drink of you know what they've created it's always better to just kind of pause and see if you can get some, some better understanding of what they got going on. Even if they don't share or open up, uh, it helps you not let the worst behaviors in them, um, you know, get a rise out of you.
0: Um, I'm going to give you two more because I don't want to take up too much of both of your time. You actually both have very (laughs) successful careers and I, you're, you're giving me your time today. Um, You're going to laugh when I say this. I'm going to go ahead and blank the last word. You'll need a lot more than an umbrella when it starts uh, blank, blank, (laughs) raining something.
2: (laughs) Well, that came from, and it's really, it was first early experience in um, really difficult situations and organizations. But as a consultant, you know, we're often asked to come in when a company gets very low scores from the workforce because of the climate survey. And things can be really difficult. So, um, you know, when it's when it's raining, people use an umbrella. But in a thunderstorm or um, when there's hail coming down, uh, an umbrella's pretty useless. And that's the case in, in the workplace. When it's raining very heavy, um, an umbrella just represents traditional solutions. Mm-hmm. And um, when there's a lot of turbulence in the workforce, traditional solutions just don't work.
0: Um, I love this one. The, mo- the more you focus on what you don't have, the less effective you are in using what you do have.
2: That's simply about you're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. If you always focus on weaknesses, um, you, you create the wrong framework. Alex and I never avoid weaknesses, but, but we always talk about, you know, what are your strengths? What do you do well? And then what are those things? You have to work to improve. And you look at, you know, instead of telling people, you know, these are your weaknesses, we just say, so what are the things you need to work on to get better? And while it seems subtle, um, it's significant because you, you know, the framing that we're talking about, thinking about weaknesses, starts in in early childhood development. And that's when, as a kid, you hear about the two Ws, wrongs and weaknesses. And that's all you get in school sometimes. That's the focus on what you do wrong, you know, where are you weak?
1: And, uh, you know, I'll just build on that to say, You know, the, the power of, of the inner narrative, you know, how you talk about yourself is the exact same way people are going to talk about you. You know, what gets said gets repeated. So if all you do is talk about your gaps or challenges, that's what people will know you by. And, you know, you don't build a sports team by saying, okay, well, let me get a good balance of weaknesses here on the team. You know, you you want to look for a balance of strengths and, you know, today, Nobody can really accomplish anything without strong people around them. And you just have to know and focus on what you bring to the table uh, as opposed to what you're not bringing. Because any successful leader is going to be able to to find others who balance and complement their skills.
0: I, I, I love that. I mean, boy, you guys are bringing it today. Um, just one more last one. I, I could literally go on and on. Um, I love this one. I If both of you can expand on this last one. And I think you brought it up during the course of our discussion today, but I'd like to highlight it again. If you're always playing it safe, you're not playing at all. You're taking up space.
2: Well, that's really about, um, you know, growing up in a gambling community and, um Having your, your family members involved and around and growing up here in Las Vegas, you are always hearing things about, you know, um, gambling phrases and one of the earliest and most influential statements I ever heard is, um, you know, scarce money never wins scarce money never wins. And the the origins of that are scared money never wins. When you're scared about, okay, I got to, I got to win with this. My, this is my last hundred dollars. When you're scared about making a bet, um, you, you're not making a bet. You've already lost. Okay. And When you try to play it safe, that you're not playing safe at all. That's the highest risk position you can take, especially in an organization, because what you're playing is kick the can, you're playing, push the decision down the road, other things will happen. Um, So where where the biggest risks are is where the biggest solutions are if you want to play it safe you get safe minimalist change if you want to here's here's one that i developed for you today for today's conversation because i knew we would end up talking about organizational change so um I I guess I would simply say that um, in organizations, um, you only get traction through action. You only get traction through action. And leaders have to take action if they're going to get traction. But if you don't get traction, it's not real action.
1: And and I'll just add, you know, if you're scared of failing or worried about, you know, the implications of, well, what if it doesn't go well? Um, You know, that that's a fixed mindset. That's you you have to know that uh, failure is part of the process. And when you uh, take uh, risks, you almost need to fail to work out the kinks to to make sure, you know, you thought through everything. So, um, you know, managers, managing is much more about playing it safe. But leading is more about taking risks. And leaders know that uh, if, if you're not taking a chance, uh, it's, it's most likely because your fear of failure or fear of, fear of things not going right.
0: Well, Rick and Alex, thank you so much for being with us today on the podcast. Rick, Rick let me ask you, either of you, can you, one of the last things I want to ask you is, are there any books or courses? Uh, I'm, we're going to give out your information to contact both of you if they would love you to, if they want your services. I, I, man, I, like I said, I think both of you are amazing. Are there any resources or books that you would both suggest that people can can read or things or courses they can take or whatever they can do to to build their leadership skills and work on their organization?
2: Well, um, we're in the process of creating a couple of um, books and if I were to recommend one book, it would be the, the book of a very good friend, Marshall Goldsmith. And Marshall's written a lot. He's the world's number one executive coach, but I think the book, uh, what got you here won't get you there, which mm-hmm. is um, actually going to be, it is 10 years old this year. That book was, uh, and still is and which actually just voted one of the best business books of all times. Wow
1: now, I got uh, two you know one was um, the first day of grad school this was this was the, uh, the book they gave out. It's Growth Mindset by Dr. Carol Dweck. you know and it it defines the difference between growth mindset and, a, and an achievement mindset. I love that. Um, You know, the other one for, you know, those who may not be uh, readers to relax, um, the Maxwell Daily Reader, Uh, you know, every day is a a quick blurb. It's, um, you know, something you can draw from. And uh, if you can work it into your habit, it it makes a big impact.
0: So thank you both very much for being here. Rick, if they want to get a hold of of your services or Alex, can you give them the, the name of your organization again, your company, how they would contact you. And then, Alex, I want you to give your podcast information again.
1: Uh, well, I'll say uh, you can head to our website at IEDLV.com. Our firm is called the Institute for Executive Development. Uh, you can also send us an email. And, um, you know, Fig, I don't know if you, you keep emails in the, the body there. Um, it's Alex A-L-E-X at IEDLV.com or Rick R-I-C-K at IEDLV.com. Uh, and and give
0: ahead. us your podcast information. I'm excited about hearing this. I, I want to hear this podcast. Can you give give it again a name and what it's about and and where they can and what uh, applications they can hear it on?
1: Sure. So it's uh, you know, learning the hard way, the easy way. You know, we'll be interviewing people about mistakes they've made, uh, what they've learned from them. You know, they'll be 15 to to 30 minutes long, depending on how many mistakes they've made. And, uh, you know, it's a chance to, uh, you know, learn from other people's experience who've really gone for it. Um, You'll be able to find it on on our website, of course, uh, as well as any major platform. And, uh, Fig, again, I believe you've agreed here to, to come on and be a guest. So... Uh, If you like what you're getting from the hyper guy here, then uh, then you'll, uh, I think, enjoy what we'll put together. So our first episode will be out on the first and uh, look forward to seeing you all there.
0: Well, again, thank you very, very much, very, very much. If you
1: like the podcast, give it a thumbs up. If
0: you like Alex's podcast, give it a thumbs up because the more thumbs up, the better, more reviews. Again, till next time, keep learning and we'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you again, Fig. You're welcome. Bye.